Welcome back to Labor Law Radio. Picking up our second half of the broadcast will be our final segment, the last 30 minutes of Michael Tracy on the radio. So be sure to tune in to our podcast. You can subscribe to it on iTunes. Uh, just search for Employment uh, Law or Michael Tracy. There's a jazz musician, Michael Tracy. That is not me. Not really a big jazz fan anyway, but I certainly am not. I used to play the trumpet, but uh, certainly am not good enough to uh, to play in a jazz band. So Michael Tracy, the jazz musician, is not me. Michael Tracy, the labor and employment lawyer, that is me. I have a podcast that talks about labor and employment issue, and you can get it on iTunes. Also at www.laborlawradio.com. So right now we were talking about uh, unpaid internships, and we're going to get into the drastic change in the computer professional. I'm going to take a brief break to cover one final question. I had just got this uh, last night. It's an interesting one because it's in one of those those industries I get so many questions from and so many labor violations. And I tell people, yes, it's a labor violation. You can sue for it. You can go to the labor board. You can do this and that. And people never do. And that is the restaurant industry. There's really two industries that I'm very frustrated with, nursing industry and the restaurant industry. A lot of nurses write me with questions. I explain to them why that policy is illegal, what the employer is doing wrong, and they ultimately don't do anything with it. Same thing in the restaurant industry. I get a lot of questions from waiters, waitresses, bartenders. Tell them what's illegal with the policy, and then they never do anything with it. So that's fine. Uh, Some of it's just educational. This is another question I get every now and then from the restaurant industry, so I'll cover it briefly. Basically, for this waiter, the customer left without paying appeared just to be accidentally, they just forgot to pay, and the employer took the money out of the employee's check. Is that legal? The answer is no. That is illegal. General rule in California is that the employer cannot charge the employee for normal business losses. In this case, customers walking out, even if it was an intentional, I mean, even if the customer you know, just ran out the door and intended to, to leave, that is simply the cost of doing business. Uh, the employer has to bear the burden. The employer gets the upside. You know, the business is very profitable. The employer makes a lot of money, gets a big house. You just get your hourly wage plus some tips. So the employer has the upside, so the employer gets the downside. If things happen, then they cannot deduct that from the employee's check. The only time they can recover stuff from the employee is if it's a willful violation. So if you smash the dish, you know, and throw it at the wall or something like that, the employer can charge you for that dish because it is a willful violation. You intentionally broke that dish. Now, the law is that they cannot deduct that money from your paycheck. They have to sue you and then get a wage garnishment and then garnish the wages for those $5 in order to recover that money from you. Now, obviously, if it's a dish, you can enter into an agreement and sign, you know, you know, pay them that money, sign something that says, I give you the right to deduct this from my wages, as long as it, it seems like there's a legitimate reason and you weren't coerced into it, probably be allowed. Maybe a little bit of, of questions there in terms of, you know, whether that was freely entered into. Certainly, if it's $5,000 in damages, you can probably get that set aside. The reason is that employers don't have any more right to your money than anybody else on the planet. So if I go into a restaurant and I pick up a dish and smash it on the floor, they can sue me for $5 for that plate. 
but they can't call up my boss and say, hey, you know, Michael ate at my restaurant last night. He smashed a $5 plate. Why don't you take $5 out of his check and pay it to me? I got a video. It's right on the video. Everybody can see that Michael Tracy smashed that plate. You know, here's a receipt for the plate. He owes me $5. Deduct it from his paycheck and pay it to me. No. Illegal. Just like anybody else, if you back into somebody's car or you, you know, damage their bike or, you know, whatever it is that you do, they can't call your employer up and say, it's, I know this guy owes me five bucks. Can you please deduct it from his paycheck and give it to me? Illegal. Can't do that. They have to go to court. They have to get a judgment against you. Then they have to file a garnishment and then they pay the garnishment and then they get your wages. Now, obviously, in that case, I'm probably going to say, yeah, I'm sorry. I broke your $5 plate. Here's your $5. Please don't sue me. But the reason is that maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm going to say, uh, the plate slipped out of my hand. Uh, your waiter bumped my hand and, the, and, and knocked the plate out. Um, you know, whatever other reason I can come up to for why that plate flew across the room and smashed against the wall, all of those are my legal defenses. And until you prove in a court of law that I broke your plate and did it on purpose, then that I owe you $5 for it. Maybe I dispute the plate was worth $5. It was already cracked. Yeah, I broke it, but it was already cracked. Plate was only worth $2. That's all I'm going to pay you. So those are all the legal defenses, and the employer can't one-up you on that. They don't have any special right just because they have your money first. So essentially, the employer can't hold your wages hostage just because they think you owe them money for something. They have to pay you the wages, and then if you owe them money, well, then they can recover it just like anybody else in California can. So nothing special. You do see a lot of that in the restaurant industry. It is illegal. And, uh, you know, you can take it to the labor board. You can sue them for it. And it is an attorney's fees case for that. So if you uh, hire an attorney, you can recover your attorney's fees for getting that money back as well. So with that said, let me go back into unpaid internships briefly, and then we're going to get into the computer programmers. Everybody who listens to this show knows I always go long because what they teach you in law school is how to speak for more time than you're allocated. That's like lawyering 101. So in any case, unpaid internships, generally no cases, nobody enforces them. So why am I talking about them here today? Do I really think a bunch of unpaid interns are going to listen to this uh, radio show and start suing their... uh, employers who weren't paying them? No, I don't. But I think with the Private Attorney General Act, we're going to see a lot more of these cases, and I love these cases. They're usually against big companies, reputable companies. Uh, We're doing three cases right now doing just this technique, and I'm sure you've heard of two of them and the other one is a public relations firm that does, uh, you know, work for uh, senators and, and you know, California senators and congressmen, uh, legislate, you know, assemblymen, not, uh, they just have a California senators, California assemblymen. So generally firms that use these interns have something to offer some type of, you know, in to whatever industry it is. And employees do these things, even though they are entitled to wages, and they're probably never going to sue for them. But again, the private attorney general act allows anybody who's employed by that organization who has a single label violation, didn't get their last paycheck, didn't have the number of hours printed on their paycheck, paycheck came from an out-of-state bank, didn't receive their vacation, vacation didn't roll over from one year to the next. I can almost always find one labor violation, so I don't worry about that. If I can't find one labor violation in a company, well, they're, they're, they're pretty good. So what I do is, in these cases, I have employees that are suing for unpaid overtime, wrongful termination, some, some labor violation, 
And these are big companies and they are trying to fight me. So the one thing I love is a company that wants to fight me. Because believe it or not, settling cases is very, very boring. I write a demand letter out. They talk back and forth on the phone, work out a number, and then send a settlement agreement back and forth, go through the terms on it, review it with the client, get it signed, get in the check. That is not why I signed up to be an attorney. That is boring. What is interesting is when the employer wants to pour hundreds of thousands of dollars into defending their employment practices. Those are the cases that I love. Yeah, that's what I signed up to be an attorney for. So we get these big companies and they're using these unpaid internships and they're fighting us pretty hard on the main front, which is, uh, was my guy wrongfully, girl wrongfully terminated, was my uh, uh, client not paid proper wages. That's the main front. So what I do is I open up a second front and that is I go after the unpaid interns and what I say, because my guys suffered this one labor violation, all we have to do is allege that we suffered one labor violation. We don't actually actually prove it to start the other lawsuit. Because we've suffered this one labor violation, we can now go after these unpaid interns. Not go after the interns, go after the employer for using the unpaid interns. We're going to sue the employer for not paying those unpaid interns, and we are going to get civil penalties. We are going to fine the employer, and we're going to try to make them pay those unpaid interns minimum wage and whatever other damages they can get. And that is why I think it's going to be very effective because these types of lawsuits can be devastating PR-wise. I haven't done the press releases on these yet because of a variety of reasons, but you may see some press releases coming out against these larger companies. And it is embarrassing when the company is being sued for minimum wage violations. That is not something that reputable companies want to have going on against them is legitimate claims for unpaid minimum wage. That does not look good uh, for the employer. So that's why it's going to, I'm using this very effectively. We go after these big companies. And if you work in one of these big companies and you see that they're using this unpaid internship program and you want to do something about it, as long as you have a single label violation yourself, I would be happy to go after these unpaid internships in that in that company. I posted a lot of information up about it on my blog. Uh, the unpaid internships common but illegal. Read that over if you think they qualify for it and you're interested in pursuing it. I'd be happy to uh, happy to do that case for you. Very interesting cases. They take a lot of work uh, to do because this is sort of a new area of the law. But uh, I do like uh, I like them so far. So. In any case, that is all I'm going to talk about with uh, unpaid interns. What I want to move on to now is the computer professional exemption. As I've talked about it a couple times on the show, it's you know my website is primarily geared toward technology professionals in terms of some of the more complex exemptions. And now, come 2008, January 1st, there is a dramatic change in the law. Now, first of all, this law, the computer professional exemption, does not apply to hardware people. That Most network technicians, help desk engineers, those people are still going to be entitled to overtime. They're still going to be entitled to liquidated damages. All of that is covered by both California and federal law. Nothing is changing for IT people, network, help desk, maybe even database administrators, depending on what type of database administrator you are. All that's not changing. What is changing are people who work in the computer uh, professional field. So let me go over exactly what those uh, 
what this exemption covers and what it doesn't cover and why it is changing. So what this exemption covers are the following types of uh job duties, job descriptions, or whatever. And this is just in Labor Code Section 515.5. A lot of people call me up and say, I have questions about that. I'm surprised how many people know what section of the Labor Code it is. So in any case, it covers the application of systems and analysis techniques and procedures, including consulting with users to determine hardware, software, or system functional specifications. So basically, if you're working as an analyst. Now, I know that contains the word hardware in there, but... I'm going to talk a little bit later about it. Specifically, it, it, it says it includes that, but then down below it says this particular exemption does not include anybody that works as an employee engaged in the operation of computers or in the manufacture, repair, or maintenance of computer hardware and related equipment. So if you work with the hardware, installing routers, configuring routers, upgrading routers, maintaining routers, anything like that, you'll fall into that bottom section which says you're not covered. But if you are analyzing the network to say maybe we need to go buy five new routers, but you're not actually going to be the one that installs it, you're just doing the systems analysis to determine what is needed, then you will qualify under this exemption, provided that's more than 50% of your time. So if you do both, you perform the analysis, say we need three new routers, you then go install the three new routers, then it's a 50% question. Did you spend more time analyzing or did you spend more time working with the hardware? Usually they're two separate things. Usually the person that does the installation has a work order, has a list of parts, they go out and uh, install it. Obviously they do some analysis, you know, is there enough power to plug all these things in or, you know, there's some basic things. But it's pretty uh, clear from the law. One is systems analysis, business analysis. That could be covered under this computer professional exemption. Working with hardware, upgrading, maintaining, installing hardware is not covered. Okay, the next part is sort of the big one, the design, development, documentation, analysis, creation, testing, or modification of computer systems or programs, including prototypes, based on and related to user or system design specifications. That pretty much covers all types of application programming. That pretty much covers uh, most computer programmers. The final one very similar documentation, testing, creation, or modification of computer programs related to the design of software or hardware for computer operating systems. Okay, that's just embedded programming, device drivers, other low-level languages. But basically from all these, it's analysts and programmers. Those people are going to be covered by this law. Now that part hasn't changed. That's the way it's always been. We've always we've talked about it on this show. And for 2007, the minimum salary requirement was $49.77. So basically, and you have to be paid that for each hour worked. So if you work, let's say, a 60-hour week, you'd have to be paid a salary of $155,000 in order to be exempt. If you're making $155,000 as a computer programmer, that's pretty good. But, uh, you know, you, you probably don't have a, a great case for unpaid overtime. What's going to happen in 2008 is that that hourly rate resets down to $36 an hour. Previously, it would go up by a cost of living increase every year, you know, roughly 2 or 3%. It started out at $41 an hour and worked its way up to basically $50 an hour. The legislator reviewed it. They passed a law that starts the whole process over at $36 an hour. What that means is that your base salary of 74880 will cover a 40-hour work week. So if you make 75000 bucks, 
You can't work more than 40 in a week, but you can work more than eight hours in a day and take the time off later in the week. There's going to be no daily overtime for you at that salary. Up at 93000 you basically hit the 50-hour mark. So that's going to cover a lot of people, um, making that amount of money working 50 hours or less, you're automatically going to be exempt. So come 2008, a lot of you computer programmers out there are going to no longer be entitled to overtime. Fortunately, it is not retroactive. The rate effect goes in place January 1, 2008. For all work performed past January 1, 2008, you can still sue for the entire four years prior to that you know, going back uh, up to four years. So what I think is going to happen with this law, I mean, it was obviously put in place so that not as many people are qualified for overtime. But hopefully what it does is that because it is such a major change, hopefully a lot of computer programmers hear about that and realize that they are losing their right to overtime pay and they do something about it now while they still can because I've done a number of these tech cases. These tech cases can be a lot of money. If you got your stock options at Google and you're doing fine, that's that's great. Um, you know, good for you. And you probably don't sue them for, for unpaid overtime. You're making plenty of money as it is. If you didn't get rich off the stock options and you put in a lot of work for these companies, you can still get paid for your unpaid overtime. Now, the most common question that I get from computer programmers is, listen to your show, I've read your website, but I don't believe it. I simply cannot believe that you're saying nearly every computer programmer in California is entitled to overtime, and yet nobody gets paid for it. I've worked for the, in the industry 5, 10, 15 years, whatever they say, and I've never been paid overtime. I've worked at 10 different companies, and I've never been paid overtime. I can't believe that that is the law. Why wouldn't more people sue? Why wouldn't employers comply with the law? And I'm going to tell you. The simple answer is that it is in the employer's economic best interest not to pay overtime. And here's why. There's really only three options that you have. Okay, you're paid on a salary basis, and you've decided you're going to do something about it. You want to get paid your overtime. You've been working a lot of uh, of hours and those stock options never quite paid off for you or even if they did nah, you just want to enforce your rights stock options don't preclude you from getting overtime but if you have a million dollars in stock options i'm just saying you might not want to spend your time pursuing an overtime claim so in any case you really only have three options to get your unpaid overtime you can take your case to the labor board we'll talk about that you can sue in court for your individual claim we'll talk about that and finally you can sue in court as a class action if you listen to our class action segment, you probably already know what some of the problems with that are, but we'll talk about them here in our final broadcast. Let's talk about the labor board first. Sure, you're a computer programmer, you take your case to the labor board, you're going to lose. That's all there is to it. You are going to lose that case. I know from a number of cases I've dealt with, from my own personal experience, the labor board is absolutely not the place to take your computer programmer case. You make too much money. They don't deal with these size claims. The average claim, the average unpaid overtime case taken to the labor board is about $6,000. If you've got a $6,000 claim and that's it, maybe you should take it to the labor board. 
If you're a computer programmer and you only have a $6,000 claim, well, you weren't doing much computer programming. The average settlement at the labor board is about 1000 bucks. And this isn't a published case. The Supreme Court had uh, done a case, and one of the parties had submitted a public uh, re request for information from the Division of Labor Standards and Enforcement, and they complied with it and produced these statistics. These are directly from the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement, quoted by the California Supreme Court. I'm not making these up. That's the type of case you take to the labor board. If you're looking for about $1,000 as, as a settlement, if you're going to be happy with $1,000 to walk away from that employer, take your case to the labor board. If you're a computer programmer, chances are your claim is, is upwards of $50,000, $100,000, depending on how many hours you worked. Taking your case to the labor board, and I've had a good number of cases I had have been where employees have lost at the labor board. If you remember, we talked about the Iker case. The employee lost at the labor board. Computer programmer appealed it and won. The court made the correct decision, overturned the labor board. Do not take your case to the labor board. And if you do, great. You know, don't even waste your time. But uh, uh, you, you could win. You know, I, I'm not saying it's impossible. But uh, it's definitely an uphill battle. Listen to our segment on the uh, labor board uh, claim before you do that. Next, you can go to court on your individual claim. And that's a good option. I do that in a, in a number of cases. And it works out well for you. That is probably going to get you a good amount of money without doing a whole bunch of work. If you get involved in a class action, a little bit more work involved. And, and you know, there's reasons for that. But... It's still in the employer's advantage to do that. And frequently the employer settles these things. Uh, we had one case where they, you know, the person's kept working at the company, settled the case, and they kept working on a salary. Come back later and sue them again. So it's in your interest to maybe pursue your claim individually. Maybe the company's not big enough for a class action. It's also in the employer's best interest for you to do that because any settlement is going to be confidential and there's still five, 10, 20 other employees that, that, that aren't going to get overtime. You say, well, these other employees may sue. I've never seen it. I've seen a couple cases where two or three employees have sued a company, but I've never seen a case where 10 employees, 20 employees all sued the company for unpaid overtime because one guy won. It just hasn't happened. 20 people isn't enough for a class action. Generally, you need 40 people for a class action. For computer programmers, class actions are very difficult, and we'll talk about that in the class action segment. I'm getting, getting ahead of myself. So in any case, works out well for you to sue individually, works out well for the employer to sue individually. They only pay one guy rather than 10. So that encourages them, and, and when they pay you, California doesn't have liquidated damages. You don't get double damages as a computer programmer. You do as a truck driver, you do as a waiter, you do as, uh, as an IT worker. IT workers get double damages. Computer programmers don't because you're exempt from federal overtime. So all the employer can lose at trial is every dime that they owed you initially. Yes, I know you get penalties, waiting time penalties. But when you have an $80,000, $90,000, $100,000 overtime claim, those penalties don't amount to a whole bunch of money. When you got a $5,000 claim, sure, they help out. But even then, they just paid didn't pay 10 people $100,000 in overtime. They saved themselves a million bucks and they paid you $100,000. And okay, they had to pay their attorney 30,000 bucks and they had to pay me 30,000 bucks. So this case all told with a jury trial and everything cost 160, maybe $200,000. And they just saved a million dollars in unpaid overtime. And so you wonder why they don't pay it. 
Well, because they saved $800,000 doing it. And most computer programmers don't sue. Not as bad as nurses, not as bad as restaurant workers, but a lot of computer programmers, for whatever reason, simply feel that uh, it's not the right thing to do. I disagree with that opinion. I lecture about it here on, on the radio. But obviously, it is their right, and uh, they're the only ones that can enforce it. The final thing I want to talk about is class actions. Well, of course, you know, the individual thing and the 10 guys and everything like that. But you still have class actions. Class action is for everybody in the company. Yeah, sure. We'll still see why the employer is better off being sued under a class action than paying everybody their overtime to begin with. The reason is that, first of all, it's very difficult to get class actions. You need 40 similarly situated employees. So at a company like Electronic Arts, where they got 40, you know, programmer level two computer graphics designers, they all do the same thing. It's very easy. But a lot of companies, non-technology companies, let's say you work for Coca-Cola. Maybe you write internal web applications to track where their trucks are. Well, you're probably one of a, a four or five person team doing that. But somebody else is doing, you know migration of their SAP system. Other ones are doing data loading from the warehouses. Everybody's doing different work. So they may have 500 programmers there, but they're not going to be similarly situated. They're going to be able to defeat a class action. So you get it in places where they have a structured environment and everybody's doing the same thing. And you've seen that with Electronic Arts, with, with Siebel, with IBM, where they were doing structured type of work. A lot of companies don't have that type of environment, so you can't get at them with a class action. And even where you can get at them with a class action, it's still in their economic best interest not to pay it. The reason is that generally when they settle these class actions, they factor in something called the risk of litigation. That is, they're not going to pay you as part of a settlement every dime you could possibly be due. They're going to discount it, maybe 50%, maybe 40%, maybe 30%, depends how strong your case is. But they're going to pay less than was due initially. And additionally, generally when class actions are settled, they're done using time records that were entered by the employees. Well, you know if you've been keeping track of your time records, you probably weren't entering every hour that you worked because you weren't getting paid for it. So that's why class actions generally underpay the employees. They can also only go back four years, so they may have been doing this for a number of years. And the, the company doesn't have to worry. If they'd been paying everybody overtime to begin with, then people would be keeping track of their hours probably uh, much more strict than they were there. Okay, so that brings us to the conclusion of this segment and also the show of laborlawradio.com. I have enjoyed doing this show. I've enjoyed talking to you. I've enjoyed your email questions and, and comments. We've seen a lot of positive comments. Very happy with the number of, of podcast subscribers and, and people listening to the radio show. Hopefully you've enjoyed it as well. I uh, look forward to doing it at some point in the future if uh, my schedule permits and if we can get a spot, hopefully, both in Southern and Northern California. But until then, uh, keep up with those uh, labor and employment issues. Please send me the emails. I'll get back to them, time permitting. And uh, thanks. Thanks a lot. This broadcast has been a commercial advertisement at the law office of Michael Tracy. Not meant to be legal advice. It is not served to establish a attorney client relationship. Any statements made during this broadcast are all swear or not guarantees of any outcome. Michael Tracy is licensed as an attorney only in California. Thank you.